Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black. Welcome to Drafting Archetypes. Today we are going to be talking about five color in the chromatic cube. So a couple weeks ago I talked about drafting five color in the previous arena cube and since then a lot of people have been asking me if the same principles apply to the current chromatic cube. And so I thought that it would be interesting to go over the differences between these two cubes and what those differences mean about card evaluation. And hopefully, uh, having covered both of those will allow you to kind of like have two points to determine a line, to figure out how you might be able to evaluate like things to look for in a different cube to figure out which concepts might translate and which might not. So that's the hope here is as far as the bigger skills that I hope to help develop. And then obviously the uh, more specific methodology will be uh, covering the cube that's currently available on Arena, the chromatic cube, as kind of a lens to talk about uh, making those evaluations. So, as always, for anyone who is a, a limited guru or higher supporter on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes, the notes for this podcast are available if you want to follow along. They're a little sparse, but there's um, just a few things I want to touch on here, really. So uh, let's get into it. A lot of what I talked about before was here are the uh, most important cards. The cards that uh, in, in that context it was framed as like these are the cards that are better than the triumphs. Where the triumphs are really high priority, these are the cards that are so ahead of cards that have a similar cost that you want to take that there'll be a bigger difference. The marginal upgrade in your spells for taking these over another spell will matter more than the marginal upgrade in your lands for taking a triumph over a land, such that you would want to take the spell more highly than a, um, a triumph. This cube is different both in kind of like what the benchmark is for when a card's exceptional and also which cards are exceptional. So. Part of that is simply that different cards are available. And a lot of the cards that were exceptional in the previous cube simply aren't in this cube. Because of that, a lot of the stuff doesn't apply. Like, you can't prioritize swords to plowshares and approach the second sun because they're not in the cube. Memory lapse, counterspell, not in the cube. That's different. <laughs> and that has uh, some ripple effects. A lot of the cards that were high priorities that aren't present were really mana-efficient answers especially significantly were those cheap counterspells like counterspell and memory lapse. The effect of cards like counterspell and memory lapse is to offer an ability to punish your opponent for spending a lot of mana on something. Counterspell isn't a card that generates card advantage, but it's a card that can generate a huge amount of mana advantage. And it can also punish someone whose strategy relies on a specific card. If you're doing a lot of build-up to play a single card and then that gets countered, if you're trying to assemble a combo and half of your combo gets countered, that's uh, particularly punishing. Because there's less of that, you're less punished for investing a lot of mana into an effect. You're less punished for trying to pair two cards together to generate a combo. 
So those kinds of things are stronger because there are fewer counter spells. And that's particularly significant in this cube as a function of kind of the design of the cube and what's going on. So what's going on with this cube is that everyone is pushed very hard to do powerful things. And because everyone's doing powerful things, you need to do more powerful things. A lot of what might constitute inevitability in another format doesn't constitute inevitability in this format. So, for example, when I'm talking about drafting a normal format and I talk about how you're going to be much better served if you're drafting a control deck, if you start with a bomb and then you can kind of just like play a game that's about trading resources and drawing cards and hanging out until you cast your bomb and then the bomb will win you, your game, win you the game. What constitutes a bomb is totally different in cube in all cases, right? Like it's not just like, oh, I have a mythic. That's going to be way better than my bonus commons because like everyone has lots of mythics. But here it goes a step further where the cards in this cube are specifically chosen to be the big flashy five plus mana effects. And so just a normal amount of, oh, I have like a bunch of five mana things. Um, I've played a lot of games where my opponent plays a bunch of like very powerful cards and I don't necessarily answer them because I just do something that's bigger than that. And I've also been on the other side where I feel like super far ahead. I have like a bunch of planeswalkers going. I have like really big creatures. And then the opponent just does something that goes over the top and doesn't care about that. Not approach to the second sun because that's not in the cube, but something like that, often involving taking extra turns. You have to get, so basically like what it means to go big in this cube is just very different. The kind of one-upsmanship that exists in this cube where it's like, oh, a big planeswalker. Okay, well, here's a big, I don't know, something more impactful than a big planeswalker. Kind of just changes what the games are about and means a lot of the like incremental value stuff that's good in other cubes doesn't amount to as much here. One of the really clear examples of that is Field of the Dead, where in a cube that has a lot of really strong interactive cards and a lot of like trading and attrition elements, uh, Field of the Dead gives you this kind of inevitability that overwhelms and beats any amount of like one-for-one -one type cards, counterspells, removal spells. And so there are contexts where Field of the Dead is basically the best thing you can be doing. But in this cube, it makes tutus. And the tutus just don't matter. Your opponent has like large numbers of giant flying creatures or whatever. And it's like pretty hard to engineer a kind of game that Field of the Dead is particularly dominant in. It's not a bad card because it's still a substantial upgrade in impactfulness compared to like most lands but it's no nowhere near as common that field of the dead directly leads to winning where it's where you can point to field of the dead as the card that was kind of like the the big impactful card in that game it's so extreme that i could make a similar statement about uro titan of nature's wrath which is mind-blowing to me, honestly. Uro is such a powerful card, and 
in this format that's about where like ramping is so good. Like the baseline for Uro should be amazing, right? Like three mana. I'm excited about just like any kind of like three mana mana rock. Like anything lets me spend three mana to get ahead by mana is great. And Uro does that. But then Uro also is Uro, which is to say it offers kind of this like inevitable grinding card advantage thing. And the rest of what Uro does is very, very downplayed in this format because a 6-6 six, six isn't that big and because all the decks are so expensive and you're not playing a bunch of like cheap stuff that's trading off and filling your graveyard and you don't have like random cantrips or anything, it's not easy to escape Uro, certainly not multiple times. Sis Cube really completes the fairly impressive task of making Uro feel fair by just not having a lot of the enablers to like fill your graveyard um, incidentally through just playing a game of magic. And then also by making Uro's body just kind of normal rather than gigantic. I still think Uro is, don't get me wrong, I still think Uro is among the best cards in the cube, but where there have been previous iterations of cubes on Arena where it's like Uro's disgusting, why are they making me play against this card again? Here it's just like Uro's another good card. It's not the most obnoxious card in the cube to play against or anything. Uh, I think that's Nexus of Fate for what it's worth. I guess that's just an example of how evaluating cards in this cube is very, very different from um, a lot of cubes and a lot of magic in general. So given that with the previous cube, uh, I focused on how cards compare to lands, I want to talk about what I'm comparing cards to now and why and how that's changed. So where before the baseline was a triome, like triomes are like this exceptional thing that lets you do the deck, that lets you be the deck. Why is that not the case anymore? We're still trying to be a five color deck. Shouldn't triomes still be exceptional at that? And the answer is that this cube, in addition to having the triomes, also has the thriving lands. And the Thriving Lands are very, very, very similar. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, the Thriving Lands are lands from Jumpstart that enter the battlefield tapped, and they have one color of mana they always tap for, and then when they enter the battlefield, you can also choose another color that they tap for. So they're like Shimmer Drafail Plus. Uh, they're not Snow Lands, but uh, they tap for, they're Dual Lands where you choose half of what they tap for. Shimmer Drift Veil can be a little bit awkward if you're actually five color, because while it fixes whatever color you didn't draw, it only fixes one color. So if your opening hand is like a dual land and a basic, uh, that's a pretty good start. You have two or three colors covered, and then Shimmer Drift Veil gives you another color. So now you have four or five colors covered, but you still have to choose which missing color you want your Shimmer Drift Veil to be. With the Thriving Lands, it's more likely that um, they can cover multiple bases. And so if you start to pair Thriving Lands with Triomes, now it gets really easy to cover all your bases. I think overall, the more Pathway and Shimmer Drift Fail and Fabled Passage type cards you have that let you select a single color to fix for, the more you want your deck to have Triomes uh, that cover a lot of your bases and then let you, f and then you know your choice cards can fill in the missing pieces. Whereas the more dual lands you have, or things that tap for multiple colors, the more you want Thriving Lands over Triomes, where 
uh, you have a lot of stuff covered, but not necessarily the right piece. And the thriving land always fills in the right piece. On balance, I think the uh, two cycles, the triomes and the thriving lands are extremely close in power level. But it's significant that there are twice as many of them in the cube now, rather than just one cycle of triomes. There's triomes plus thriving lands, so instead of five, there are ten, which, you know, for a whole cube and a whole table of drafters, doesn't seem like it should be that significant, but it is. Not all players prioritize these things. Not everyone at the table is drafting five colors, even in the chromatic cube. A deck only wants so many lands that always enter the battlefield tapped. Also, I think to some extent the Thriving Lands play better than they read, and I think some portion of players, currently at least, are undervaluing how good the Thriving Lands are, which makes it a little bit easier to get more of them. And so the effect is that it's pretty easy to get the number of lands that enter the battlefield tapped that you want. And then on top of that, there are more different cards that cost two or three mana that tap for a mana of any color that you want to draft and put in your deck in this cube. Like there are more of them and they're more desirable for this archetype. So you end up playing a lot more of those and every single one of those that you play makes your mana way, way better. For people who aren't really familiar with building five color mana bases, you're basically looking to get like a total count of the number of different cards in your deck that give you access to each of the colors in your deck. And if you're like a balanced five color deck, you'll probably want somewhere in the like seven to 10 type range of number of different cards in your deck than can give you each of the colors. So if you start with imagining that your deck is 17 basic lands, that gives you 17 total ways to get all five different colors, which means on average, you're only going to have a little over three sources of each color. Anytime you replace a basic land with a dual land, you're basically plus one source of a color. So if you have three dual lands, now instead of just over three sources of each color, you're up to four sources of each color if you divide them evenly among the colors and all your and you're only fixing is three dual lands. Anytime you have a land that uh, lets you choose which color, that is a card in your deck that can give you any of the colors. So um, when it replaces a basic, which gives you one color and it gives you access to five, that's plus four sources, which is a huge different when you're, difference when you're trying to like increase this count. But the more you uh, count like a Shimmer Drift Veil as five different colors, the more uh, awkwardness you find in games where you're trying to do more lifting than you can actually do with that card. Whereas if what you have is like a chromatic lantern that actually does give you all the colors and you count that as uh, one source of every color, that's more of like a, a hard source and a, a real count. And you can afford a few soft sources, but you run into trouble if you have too many of them. This is all a little bit wobbly. The point is, when you pick a dual land as fixing, you've increased your total access to different colors by one. When you take a triumph, you've increased by two. When you take a thriving land, you've increased by four. When you take an artifact that taps for one mana of any color, you've increased by five. These jumps by five are a really big deal. So like if you're trying to get to say like 40 total different sources of colors so that you have roughly eight each of five different colors and you're building up from 17 through like drafting things that are better at finding colors than basics are you know if you draft just like two of these five color mana rocks that's plus 10 that's a huge portion of what you're looking for so 
That is to say, every single one of these, like Mana Rocks, Solemn, Simulacrum, Golos type cards that you draft, those get you to your account very quickly. And so the more you're drafting those cards, the less you need to prioritize lands. So because there are so many more of those, I'm comfortable in this cube if I only have, say, like seven to ten basic lands or non-basic lands. Whereas in the previous cube, it was more important to me to get to maybe like 10 to 13 non-basic lands, which might not seem like a huge difference, but, you know, everything matters. That's uh, a deeper dive than I've really recorded in podcast form on like how I think about these like five color mana bases. Hopefully that was helpful. And then obviously that has implications, as I talked about, for how you're prioritizing lands. So given that you're not prioritizing lands as highly. And so for me, like the difference between an exceptional like bomb type card, like Nexus of Fate. So Nexus of Fate is like, okay, my deck is way better because I've drafted this. This gives me a meaningful kind of inevitability. I treat this the way that I would treat a bomb in Limited. There are like, I think Crackle with Power functions similarly in this cube. There are very, very few cards that I think really stand out in that way. Like, Nexus of Fate and Crackle with Power are the two spells that I think are just, like, really substantially game-winning. And then uh, there are some, like, exceptionally good value-type cards that just play really well in this cube. Ur of Titan of Nature's Wrath, Golos, Tireless Pilgrim, Solemn Simulacrum, and Ugin the Ineffable that are kind of, like best in class meaningfully better than other cards and then there are a lot of cards that are just like this is a good use of its amount of mana mythos of Aluna is a very good four mana play it's appreciably better than most other cards that you would get that cost four mana but it's not taking my deck to another level it's just this is a good card in my deck basically the way that i'm thinking of it is like those six cards are like basically every deck wants every every five color deck really wants those they'll all like make my deck quite a bit better i'm going to take them over basically anything and then anything outside of those six cards and then you know maybe a few others like maybe marari's wake belongs in there 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 are a few where it's hard to draw the line but basically ahead of everything else that's just a good use of its amount of mana. So like cards like Noxious Gear Hulk and the other ones I've mentioned, just like any anything where it's like, yeah, this is like in the top five cards of its cost or whatever. I'm taking a two mana mana rock like Cold Steel Heart over just all of them. So Cold Steel Heart is the best of the two mana rocks because it's also fixing, which makes it like a higher priority for me than cards like Mindstone and Explore and Guardian Idol. Might be more useful to think of Hold Steel Heart as one of those actual top tier bombs, but that, I don't know, feels weird. But anyway, the point is top tier bombs, two mana rocks. Then it gets a little bit murky in terms of like when you're supposed to take like super good card of its cost, naming random other ones that are in that space, like Oracle of Moldiah, Binding the Old Gods, Escape the Wilds, Genesis Ultimatum, Thieving Skydiver. Like there are a whole bunch of these just like good solid cards that kind of end up like competing with both all of the three mana rocks like Chromatic Lantern and Cultivator's Caravan. And then those also compete with the Triumphs and Thriving Lands. For the most part, I think the like the best of the rest, the cards that aren't the actual bombs, but are this like ahead of the back type cards, you'll generally take those over three mana rocks and Triumphs and Thriving Lands. But that's going to be a function of like whether you're on pace to have 
a proper mana base and a question of your curve. Like, do you, how many mana rocks do you have? How much fixing do you have? How bad does your mana situation look? So I guess that's where it gets into like, you know, uh, nuts and bolts, like fundamentals, drafting skills type stuff where you're trying to make those picks. Whereas, you know, like it doesn't, you don't need any like fundamentals for like, should I take Golos? Like if it's in the pack uh, and there's not like a different bomb, yeah, you should take Golos. It's like fixing and an above rate threat. It's just everything you want to be doing in the cube. I guess another thing, so there are the cards like Solomgar's Command and Ochitai's Command that are in this cube and in the other cube. They're not as impressive to me in this cube as they are in the other cube. Solomgar's Command is still, I think, like an exceptionally good use of its mana or whatever. It's not ahead of these other good uses of mana. And like Ochitai's Command is solid kind of whatever. The issue is that instants play well with instants because when you have a lot of instants, you can just pass and react to what your opponent's doing. Whereas if you have a lot of sorceries in a few instants, your hand is going to have these sorceries that you want to spend your mana on. And you'll often only have one instant. And if you want to like plan to spend your mana on that, you need to just like pass with the ability to cast it and then hope that an opportunity to use it specifically presents itself. And it makes it a lot harder to play a reactive game when uh, your density of instants is lower. And I think this cube generally pushes you toward more of a tap-out strategy, which makes all of the instants a little bit less, less valuable. On the other hand, because your opponent is also playing a tap-out strategy with a lot of sorcery speed cards, it does create spots where cards like Spell Swindle can be very, very strong. So th there are a few instants that are so good that they're like great despite the fact that they don't have uh their kind of like natural synergy with other instants it's it's a very different dynamic to the control decks where in the previous cube you could draft instant speed control and in this cube you're drafting sorcery speed and i hesitate to even call it control it's really uh i mean the space that would sometimes get categorized as tap out control but there's not a lot of difference between that and mid-range, and I mean, it's just big proactive is really a better description of what's going on. Another thing about the world where a lot of the games that you're playing are big proactive mirrors is, I've, I mentioned this idea that what it takes to go over someone else is, is different, and I touched briefly on the idea that combos are better. One that I want to call out uh, that I've had a lot of success with, weirdly, is uh, Brash Taunter plus Star of Extinction. Um, Brash Taunter is the improved Stuffy Doll, uh, one red and four colorless. For an indestructible 1-1, one -one, you can spend two in a red, tap it to fight target creature, and whenever it takes damage, it does that much damage to your opponent. If you control that and you cast Star of Extinction, which kills land and does 20 damage to all creatures, you get to do 20 damage to your opponent. And Brash Taunter being indestructible is fairly hard to kill, Star of Extinction is actually just a good card. Um, seven mana sweeper plus kill land that also hits planeswalkers in line with what you're looking for in this cube. And Brash Taunter, like, it looks like a bad card because it's a five mana 1-1. One, one. And I would say that uh, if you played its limited format, it overperformed there, but like not necessarily in a way that would make you think it's good in cube because it was never close to being successful and constructed or anything. But it's uh, really impressive in this cube because everyone has big creatures and Brash Taunter basically makes it almost impossible to attack on the ground and lets you just like hit your opponent for 
damage equal to the biggest creature by fighting. So like the Brash Hunter by itself is fine to solid is like solid. The Star of Extinction by itself is good. And when you combine them, you get this two card win the game combo, which makes it a two card win the game combo is just really good in this cube. Another example of a two card win the game combo in this cube is basically Mirari's Wake plus Crackle with Power. There are also like Cathar's Crusade is a card that like didn't make my list of like exceptionally good cards because it's like some assembly required, like it has specific combos rather than just like generically good. Any sort of like two card do something super exceptional combo that you can find is great. Like all of the cards that like make it a lot easier to generate like a game winning play like Murray's Wake and um, Double Vision are really high priorities. Mizzix's Mastery is another like this can be a game winning play. Crackle by itself is not amazing at just like being lethal. Crackle with like anything that pairs well with Crackle is, which is why I have Crackle as a top tier bot. Basically what I'm saying is pay attention to any sort of two or three card combo that like does something that's just going to end the game because there's a lot of powerful back and forth and sometimes your opponent's going to have like a bunch of stuff going on and if you can just ignore all of it and win and just do something that is just like well this wins you're going to get a lot of wins by assembling that you know there are cards like starnheim unleashed that look to just like yeah I, I did this and it won i mean to me starnheim unleashed is in the like you know the large exceptionally strong but not top tier bomb category again debatable you know some people might put it in the top tier bomb category instead there's there's some wiggle room here in terms of you know like what about like karn's temporal sundering it's really really easy to win a game where you cast karn's temporal sundering i have it only in the exceptionally strong category because you know like i i do i have found the you need to control legendary thing clause to be a little bit restrictive like non-trivial but i mean very easy some decks can't do it, but for the most part, you can. It's worth finding a plan to outright win the game. I think that basically covers what I think is going on with this cube. It's where efficient interaction was a really high priority and like gaining life to beat aggro decks was really high priority and basically just like a lot more fundamental like grinding, making positive exchanges type stuff mattered in that cube like basic principles of mana advantage and card advantage and attrition and stuff like that all of that like applied to uh the gameplay in the old cube and informed prioritization in drafting control decks in that cube whereas in this cube i don't think you're ever really trying to like run your opponent out of resources and you're not necessarily like trying to like profitably trade with their stuff ideally you want to just ignore it you want to just do stuff that's more powerful than what they're doing i've talked about kind of just like different ways of evaluating resources that matter and like the difference between a, a deck caring about attrition versus caring about tempo the attrition to tempo spectrum is not all-encompassing they are opposite ends of something and a deck can care about one or the other, but it's also possible to care about neither and to play a different kind of game. For example, Tron, the modern deck that assembles uh, the Urza lands and casts Karn Liberated, isn't really a tempo deck or an attrition deck. It's a go-over-the-top deck, uh, which 
is also true of like a combo deck or whatever. And like those can end up in like racing type scenarios where it's somewhat analogous to tempo or whatever. But the thing that's happening with ramp decks, the thing that they care about where you're not trying to like not give your opponent time to cast their spells and you're not trying to answer their spells. You're trying to ignore their spells because you're dictating the terms of the game and you're making it about the thing that you're doing rather than being about the thing that they're doing. That's what this cube is about. This cube is about controlling the narrative and saying we're the game that we're playing is about the stuff that my cards are doing, not about the stuff that your cards are doing. The stuff your cards are doing doesn't matter because my cards are they do what matters. So I think that that fundamentally should be like how you're approaching deck building and card selection is take the cards that are best at dictating the terms of what the game is about. So that is my lecture. So I am happy to turn this over to Twitch chat for questions. I want to thank my new patrons this week on patreon.com slash drafting archetypes. Arthur, Jesse and Russell, thank you very much for the support and welcome to the uh, Patreon community. Anyone out there listening, however you're listening at the moment, is interested in joining that for whatever reason, please uh, check out the Patreon and see if it appeals to you. Uh, Patreon.com slash drafting archetypes again. Let's see where we're at with uh, the chatters. First question, are planeswalkers worse in this cube? I think that evaluating the question worse is maybe not uh, the best way to answer it because that involves everyone coming from a unified baseline about their understanding about how good uh, planeswalkers are. So I, I would rather cover just like are planeswalkers good in this cube? And obviously not all planeswalkers are created equal. I did mention a few of them. I think Ugin is super exceptional. The reason Ugin is super exceptional is that it's colorless and that it is really, really good at dominating a game if it lives, and it's a good answer. So it's basically everything you're looking for in a Planeswalker. There are other Planeswalkers that I think are really notably good. I would say that the Planeswalkers that stand out are Kaya the Inexorable, Ashiok Nightmare Muse, and Ral Storm Conduit. Ral is a little bit different than the others, where the others are just like, this does the Planeswalker thing that you want, um, which is to say the like, basic play pattern of this can function as an answer or it can function as like a persistent threat that offers like good inevitability if my opponent can't answer it. Nicol Balas is in a similar space but very hard to cast. Ral doesn't do that. Ral is basically like a, a budget double vision and double vision super good and Ral is good at generating game winning plays. Um, so Ral functions more like an enchantment or like a fork with suspend, uh, copy, whatever, by example, whatever, whatever version of copy your next spell you're used to thinking about. So like those planeswalkers are really good. There are other planeswalkers like uh, Liliana, Death's Majesty. It's solid, but it's not amazing. And the difference there is that Liliana's plus ability is comparable to the other planeswalkers where it's just like generates some value, though similar to Field of the Dead, the value that it generates doesn't necessarily matter that much. And then its ability to return a creature is a little bit more narrow and a little bit less useful or more situationally useful than kind of the generic answer your card ability that a lot of Planeswalkers have. So I would say that where Planeswalkers are looking to grind in a way that is like what Liliana is doing, that's a little bit weaker than you might expect. 
because it's so easy to go over the top. And so like where in a lot of other contexts, it's like I have a planeswalker. If my opponent can't answer that, my planeswalker will take over the game. Here, not all planeswalkers take over the game. You might be able to like just let your opponent activate a planeswalker for several turns and then do something that's bigger than whatever advantage they gained from it. But where a planeswalker is just a two-for-one that meaningfully answered your opponent's thing that was trying to win the game. Like, my opponent plays double vision. I'm really happy to have my own Kaya that I can play in exile the double vision. And now, like, I'm ahead on that exchange. Like, we both spent five mana, but I killed their thing, and I still have a Planeswalker that they have to answer. That's kind of, like, what Planeswalkers are doing that is good. Using a Planeswalker's plus ability, just in a general concept is less likely to take over a game in a turn or two than it might be in many other formats or cubes or whatever. Uh, next question, at what point should I say, okay, this is enough mana rock slash ramp, start drafting payoffs in this cube? Nope. Nope. <laughs> uh, there, there isn't enough. Um, I mean, especially with two mana rocks, like the more you have, the better, just full stop. If you have every single one in the cube, like if you have all but one of them, I would take the next one happily. As far as three mana rocks, like okay, technically you could have like enough of those that it might be a problem or whatever, but like so many of the good plays cost exactly five mana um, that like if I have a deck where the thing that I do is just reliably play three mana rock into five mana like big thing, I'm just happy about that. So I don't know, I would want, I would want like four, but I would also want any number of two on like two mana rocks on top of it. And just like, Rather than being like, okay, I have enough of these now, I'm going to start taking like threats. I would rather just like take more of this and be like, okay, now I can take more expensive threats or be more ambitious with my colors or whatever. Obviously, you know, not all three mana ramp things are created equal. I think like the colorless artifacts are a lot better than like the gold creatures that tap for mana, like Leyline Prowler and Fabro Elder is uh, the name of the good creature. And I honestly don't have enough experience to know exactly how good Faber Elder is. It's possible that Faber Elder is just like busted, like better than all the three mana artifact rocks. Like I'm not sure if Faber Elder is a is better or worse than uh, say like Chromatic Lantern, but it it kind of depends on how reliably you have green white early, obviously among other things. But anyway, yeah, you you want a lot of uh, the mana rocks. Also, the the more expensive planeswalkers, like seven mana nickel bullets planeswalker and Liliana Dreadhorde General. The, yes, the, those are also very strong. But I mean, again, they're strong in the strong card for it, like the reasonable use of their amount of mana. Like it, all of the good six and seven mana plays should be highly impactful. Again, I, I can't say that a six or seven mana play is game ending because you just go back and forth and you both play six and seven mana plays, which is why the stuff that's actually game ending is so exceptional. Next question. Watching my stream over the past few days, uh, I noticed that most of my decks were four color rather than five, and specifically they weren't black. Is that a personal preference or other reasons? Honestly, black cards just aren't that good. Like when I looked through uh, the black cards for cards that I thought were exceptional, the list was basically like um, Noxious Gear Hulk and Yoggamoth's File Offering. There are a few gold black cards that are pretty good, like uh, Kaya the Inexorable and Hostage Taker and Ashiok Nightmare Muse, Solemgar's Command. I'm happy to like uh, Binding the Old Gods. I'm happy to splash a bit of those, but I think black is just like a little bit weaker than the other colors. I don't avoid black cards. I'm totally willing to like splash some black, but I do think that like the fact that Gonti costs double black on four 
is a notable strike against it because uh, like it doesn't have good company in the other black cards. And so like you don't necessarily want to build a mana base that's going to like try to get a lot of black because the cards just aren't that great. Also, like Gonti is not playing the right game. It's like a value card that might hit something exceptional, but the body doesn't matter very much. And the like sweet, like recursive Gonti stuff that uh, can be really powerful in some cubes, again, is just like unlikely to be what the games are about in this cube. And I think that like black, just like categorically, like the stuff that it's doing is often in that direction where it's just a little bit too grindy for what these games are about. How important do you think the few cheaper sweepers like Extinction Event, Hour of Devastation, and Realm, Realm Club Giant are for these as insurance against the aggressive decks? I think it is nice to have those cards. I'm not at a place where I'm like, oh, I need one of these, though I do think that it is good to have like multiple cards that give you a plan against the aggressive decks. I think that the good versions of like uh, red-white or green-white aggro can meaningfully threaten control decks and like you can lose to aggressive draws from those decks and you do want to have a plan the sweepers are very very strong in those matchups but they're not like the only way to have a plan there is some removal there are cards like elish norn um you can also just like go over the top of what they're doing with Starnheim Unleashed or whatever. Sweepers are good, but situational in a way that makes me not uh, put them in an exceptional category. But like, basically, I would take a sweeper ahead of like most things that aren't in my like listed as notably good category. So I would take sweepers over like interchangeable threats like Tatiova and they get Rog Monster and just like the the random like this is a legend that provides some value like maybe a card or turn or something if it's not answered. I mean there there are just a lot of cards in that space where it's like this is a fairly big generic threat. There's like that five color angel that lets you cast any spell if it hits your opponent. Those are my lower tier of cards. You end up playing some of those a lot of the time and it's fine. But where it's just like, this is a card that doesn't immediately generate any value, any value and can be answered, that stuff I would generally take lower than the sweepers to give you an idea of like, where are the sweepers in my priority rankings? How do you classify slash prioritize cheap ramp spells like uh, Spiral Explorer that you uh, play lands but don't guarantee ramp? I classify those basically as two mana ramp. I value them very, very highly. Yeah, Growth Spiral and Explorer are right around, you know, top 10 cards in the cube or whatever. All that stuff is super, super good, super important. Another card that's like Incubation Druid is in that this is a two mana ramp type card that's really exceptional. Maybe a better guess is that all of those, all, like just those effects categorically are like the 10th to 20th best cards in the cube or whatever. In the ramp slash fixing tiers, where do you place cards like the World Tree, Beanstalk Giant, Path the World Tree, Farfinder? The World Tree, I rank in the like exceptional for its cost category, which is to say, I think the World Tree and Field of the Dead are the two best lands in the queue. I think Beanstalk Giant is roughly analogous to Cultivator's Caravan or other like good three mana rocks. Path the World Tree is like low tier fine. Like it's like good for its cost, but doesn't it's not that likely to matter. I would be comparing it to 
the like generic big threats and stuff like that. I, I would take it below the cards that I think really matter. Farfinder is like if I'm desperate, but it's not good. I think Gilded Lotus is in the like, I, I would categorize that and the four mana rocks like uh, Firemind's Vessel and the seven mana rock, the Chromatic Ori or whatever. All of those I think of as essentially comparable to uh, creatures, uh, like normal creatures that have similar costs to them. Gilded Lotus is roughly as scary to play against as Tatiova or whatever, where it's like, if my opponent untaps with this, it's going to meaningfully generate value, but like I get a turn to answer it. It's it's expensive. It's not a two-for-one, but it is strong. Uh, there was a note about Ruinous Ultimatum being a card that was successful. I have Genesis Ultimatum noted as exceptional. A lot of that is because it's just easier to cast than the other Ultimatums because it's good colors. But I think that Ruinous Ultimatum and Inspired Ultimatum are also like very good if you can cast them and the Ultimatums are castable. I mean, they're good. They're like, they're certainly in the, this is a good a good effect for its mana kind of category. You know, I don't know that the ultimatums are particularly better than like Scholar of the Lost Trove or whatever. They're satisfactory seven drops. Next question, are the sweepers that hit Planeswalkers significantly better uh, than sweepers that don't hit Planeswalkers? So Star and our, like basically our Star and our Devastation better than like Crux of Fate and Realm Cloak Giant and stuff. Obviously it depends somewhat on how many Planeswalkers you have. I mean, for the most part, like, yeah, it's certainly nice to like also pick up Planeswalkers. I think broadly, like sweepers are kind of all in, you know, like unless we're getting super, super into the weeds here, like I think sweepers should be viewed largely interchangeably. Uh, like how much do I care about this kind of effect? And as I've mentioned, the amount that I care about it is more than I care about generic threatening card, less than I care about exceptionally above rate threatening card. Next question. Have you run up against hand disruption decks that deal with the high cost cards before they're cast? So offhand, the hand disruption that I can think of that exists is Agonizing Remorse. I'm not sure if Elspeth's Nightmare's in. I guess arguably you could call like Nicobolos hand disruption. I don't think there's a lot of it, and I don't think that like a few spot discard spells matter that much because for the most part you like have so many expensive cards that you like have more than you can cast anyway. So no, I, I don't think that that's really like a meaningful element in what's happening in this cube. I guess there's like the freebooter and stuff, but like for the most part, it's you know these things are like minor inconveniences. You can generally answer that stuff and you also just like are so likely to have other stuff to do that it doesn't really matter. Next question, what's my thought process when my first pack has no exceptional cards in it? Uh, I mean, it's just the way that I mentioned that, you know, like I think Explore is a, you know, the roughly 10th best card in the cube or whatever, 10 to 20, somewhere in that range. I would say to some extent, I just like broadly have a full hierarchy of like how good is every card and just go down it. I mean... I haven't actually thought about this cube so much that that actually exists, but you know, I, I have like made a list of like, okay, well here are like the bombs, here are like the exceptional cards. And then if there's like nothing that stands out as like, well, this is just a better than like an average card, I'll just take a dual land. Like there's gotta be something. I would ideally first pick a bomb, 
that's not there. Two mana ramp, that's not there. Exceptional card, that's not there. Three mana ramp, that's not there. Good land, that's not there. Steam vents, that's not there. I don't know. Like, some, I guess there's just a horrible pack, and then I try to find something that's maybe just like exceptional in some specific archetype or like some kind of interesting build around or whatever. All right, I think I'm going to wrap this up there. Thank you very much, everyone, for questions. Thanks for tuning in. I thought this episode might run a little short, but turns out uh, there's always a lot to talk about uh, when it comes to cubes. Hopefully you found uh, some of this discussion interesting. I think that we did end up touching on some things that I think are pretty valuable to know about. Hopefully some of that was new for you. And I will be back uh, next week, as always. <laughs> and as has been the trend in this uh, transition period between uh, Strixhaven and Adventures in Forgotten Realms, I am not sure what I'm going to be talking about because I don't know how much we will know about Adventures of the Forgotten Realms a week from now. If we have enough information that I can uh, start to think about that limited format, that would be great. And if not, uh, we'll see. But tune in and find out. Uh, thank you again, everyone, and goodbye for now.